sons. Why? Because he'd been born to him in his old age. Joseph was the favorite because he came late in life. And he's also the favorite because he's the firstborn son of his favorite wife, Rachel. Anytime you hear favorite, you know you have a family dynamic that's gone wrong. I also have a favorite wife, but I get away with it because Karina is my only wife. When you are picking a favorite above, above, among many, that just has a way of taking the family dynamics and totally wrecking them. Not only that, we're told that, that Rachel, in addition to being the favorite of Jacob's wives, was lovely, was beautiful, and that her son Joseph was well-built and handsome. Apparently he got all those, got all those good genes from his mom. A year later, it's gift-giving time, and Jacob got a gift, but only one, and he gave it to Joseph. What was it? Some of you know the story. It made into a musical. It was an ornate robe. One of the old translations calls it a coat of many colors. Andrew Lloyd Webber called it 
of the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. But whatever it was, it marked out Joseph again as the favorite. Now, how do you think if you were one of the brothers of Joseph, you felt about that? Well, the text answers in verse 4. It says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of them, they hated him. They could not speak a kind word to him. It's very striking in the story. It doesn't say they got mad at their dad, who's the one playing favorites. Nobody goes to Jacob and says, Dad, we're angry about the way that you favor our brother Joseph. It's not fair. Nobody talks about the problem. Isn't that often how it is in families? That underneath the surface level problem, nobody's dealing with the real problem. The first sign of broken relationships in family or, or in marriage isn't the presence of violence. It's an example. We'll get there. But the beginning is an absence of kindness. And here's what begins to happen with the brothers. They could not speak a kind word to him anymore. Withdrawal, avoidance, distance, ignoring. Those things are meant to hurt. And they do. Now Joseph, for his part, doesn't help matters anyway. He has a dream. In his dream, he sees that his brothers are all like sheaves of wheat in a field. And symbolically, they bow down to him. And he doesn't have any filter in his speech. He doesn't think that this might be a hurtful dream to communicate. He runs right to his brothers and tells them all about it. And then in verse 5 it says, And when Joseph told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. There's no indication that Joseph had any clue whatsoever about their pain. In fact, he explains his superior future to them in great detail. In verse 8, the brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream, because of what he had said. To make matters worse, he has a second dream, a sequel. This time it's not just the brothers, but it's also mom and dad. Everybody's bowing down to him. And he tells them, of course, about that dream too. And now his brothers are fuming. Jealousy, anger, rage. And you wonder, as you think about Joseph, could anybody be that clueless? Uh-huh. I have. In the next verse, the brothers who are homicidally mad at Joseph, they're away tending to the family flock, to the sheep out on the hillsides. And the dad calls Joseph in, favorite son. And he says to him, I'm going to send you to check on your brothers. In other words, Joseph, go do more spying. This is what started all the bad blood in the first place. Could a parent really be so blind to what's going on? Uh-huh. I have. So Joseph goes. Before we read any further, I want to remind you again that this is a Christmas story. Some of it is going to be hard to hear and hard to believe, but it's a Christmas story. As we read on the story, the brothers saw him coming a long way off. How did they recognize Joseph? A long way off, they couldn't see his face. The answer, of course, is that crazy, ostentatious, flamboyant robe. Here comes the dreamer, they said, in verses 19 and 20. Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let's 
killed him. And then let's say that a ferocious animal devoured him. It's just a little aside. Be careful about who you talk with about your anger. Here they're, they're fuming together. The anger has a tendency to escalate. It's the mob mentality. Of course, it can be therapeutic to reveal and rehearse your anger with a sympathetic friend, but if your friend reinforces bitterness and resentment and envy, as happens here, it actually just makes your anger problem a lot worse. There are people who are like anger incubators. If you don't know where to find them, they're all over the internet. One of the brothers, the fourth born of the brothers, a man named Judah, comes up with an alternative plan. He suggests that, that instead of killing him outright, that they sell Joseph into slavery, that they make a profit in doing so, and they also avoid the potential of a murder charge. But to make the illusion stick, what they do is they take his cloak and they dip it in goat's blood and they show the bloody clothes to their father Jacob. And then Jacob would assume that, that he'd been killed by one of the wild animals who had been pursuing the flock. And that's exactly what they did. They dipped that, that crazy, ornate cloak in blood. And then in verse 32 it says, they took the ornate robe back to their father, and they said, look, we found this. Examine it. See whether it's your son's robe. Do you recognize this? They asked him. That little phrase. And we come back to again and again in Genesis. We talked about it last week. If you notice here, again, do you recognize this? Notice also they said, our brother's robe. They didn't say our brother's robe. They didn't say Joseph's robe. They said, your son's robe, that, that dreamer. Isn't that what we do when we're mad at somebody? We dehumanize them? As the story unfolds, they don't even have to lie. They could just let those bloody clothes do the lying for them. And Jacob is convinced that Joseph has been killed. He goes into mourning. He refuses to be comforted. That's a technical term. It means he... He chooses to extend the time of his mourning indefinitely. He says he's going to remain in mourning until he dies. Here's one of the bitter ironies of the story. They got rid of their brother, but it doesn't get them what they want. It doesn't get them the love and the acceptance and the blessing of their father. Family doesn't get healed. They may have got what they asked for, but they didn't get what they wanted. And fast forward through a number of the chapters. Joseph has been separated from his family for 20 years. He's kidnapped, he's enslaved, he's unjustly put in prison. Two of his fellow prisoners used to work for Pharaoh. One night, they're both awakened by troubling dreams. It seems something in Joseph has changed just a little bit. Because now this one who's so clueless about his brother's pain notices that there's something wrong in the hearts of his fellow prisoners. Sees that they're miserable and asks them. And then he goes on to listen and interpret their dreams. The word gets out. The word gets out about the ability that Joseph has. And eventually the word gets to the ear of Pharaoh. And the great Pharaoh of 
teacher. He would have been perplexed by this troubling dream. In his dream, he sees seven fat cows and seven skinny cows. By the way, if you've ever wondered where skinny cow ice cream came from, this is it. Jacob sends his sons to get some, but he keeps one home. He keeps home his youngest, his, his boy Benjamin, who, like Joseph, was born to his favorite wife. All the other brothers are, bought, are brought before Joseph, and there they beg for food. It's been 22 years now since they sold him into bondage. They don't recognize him. They don't know that this powerful official is their brother. And they bow down before him. They lay their faces in the ground, just like the bent sheaves of wheat in a dream. Of course, Joseph, he recognizes the midst of him. He remembers. But he doesn't tell them yet who he is. So this gets to the core of the story. He pretends to be a stranger. He speaks harshly to them initially. He accuses them of being spies. He says... You are not honest men. Chapter 42, if you want to pick up in the story, in verse 13, he says, Your servants, or this is the brother speaking back to Joseph, Your servants, we were twelve brothers, all the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Of course, that one who is no more is Joseph. And Joseph says, well, if that's true, go back home and bring your little brother back as proof, and I'll give you what you need, and you will live. Of course, those of us who are reading the story or listening to it are wondering, well, why doesn't he just tell them who he is? They're desperate. They'll do whatever he asks. Does he just want to make them squirm? Is he just getting a little revenge? There's something else going on here. Could it be that the reason is that Joseph doesn't just want to forgive, that he wants to reconcile with them? There's that word, that word that we placed in the center of the Advent season. He wants to reestablish a relationship that has been broken. But that takes time. 
the writer of Genesis doesn't record any of the words of Joseph pleading for his life. But here it is 20 years later, his brothers remember how he pled before them. And now they don't call him the dreamer. Now they don't call him dad's favorite. Now he is our brother, Joseph. And as Joseph watches on, Unknown to them, maybe he begins to see at least the sign of a small change in their hearts. Maybe something really has happened over the past 22 years. The Bible says Joseph turned away from them, and quietly he began to weep. They go home, and for a long time, their father Jacob won't let them return. Why? Because... He doesn't want to let go of his favorite son, Benjamin, the one favorite he has left. But the famine was relentless. The ancient world was cruel. It's a brutal place. And eventually, in desperation, Jacob sends back all of his boys, Benjamin too, his favorite son. And when they arrive, when they arrive, shades of the prodigal son, Joseph arranges a feast. They still don't know who Joseph is. But here's another little oddity. When the portions are served out at the feast, Benjamin's portion is five times larger than anybody else's. What a strange gesture. Why would he do that? I mean, one more time, you see the youngest son being treated as the favorite in a world that values and blesses only the first. How will the other brothers respond? Will envy still win? Will jealousy and bitterness and hatred, will those things well up in their lives again? Joseph's watching. The brothers leave. They're planning to make their way home. And Joseph is extraordinarily generous with them. He says that he'll send them back home to their dad with all the bread they need and all the money they brought. He's giving it all for free. They're staggered. They pack up and go with, I'm sure, joy in their hearts. But as they're leaving, Joseph sends out his servants after them to bring them back into Egypt. Why? Because in their leaving, as they were cleaning the household, they noticed that one of the prized artifacts of the house a precious silver cup had gone missing. The servants bring them back, search the belongings of all the brothers, 
That's the situation now that's been placed before the brothers. Once again, with their younger brother, their father loves them most. They can be rid of him entirely. They did it once before. This time they don't even have to do anything wrong as far as they know. This is Benjamin's own fault. Who stands up? Of all people, it's Judah. Judah whose idea was to betray Joseph 22 years ago. Judah, whose idea was to betray and violate his daughter Tamar, as we looked at that story last week. That Judah stands up, and he makes the longest, most impassioned speech in the whole book of Genesis. He says that if he and his brothers go back from Egypt without Benjamin, they would bring their father's gray head down in misery. He goes on. This is chapter 44, verse 30. It says, If my father, whose life is closely bound up with that boy's life, if he sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. The servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Of course, the point of the story is, never disappoint a person with a gray head. They are somehow precious, particularly precious to God. Judah's words here, unspeakably poignant. He says to Joseph, again, he doesn't know that this is Joseph, but he says, we have an aged father, and there's a young son born to him in his old age, and his brother is already dead. And he's the only one of his mother's, that's Rachel, the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him without parallel. He doesn't say, my father loves me or our father loves us. There's a flaw in the father, a flaw in Jacob that may never be fixed. But Judah has learned all of these years later that the path of envy and resentment and hatred and self has ruined his life. And now he's found a way to honor his father, even with the mixture of good and bad that is in him. Children, there is a lesson there for us, for you. There is a way to honor your poor parents, as flawed and broken as we can be. Finally, come to the climax of the whole book and of the whole story. Judah says 
distress, and wrongdoing. They're all an indispensable part of spiritual growth and moral health. And if somebody has wronged you, you can let go of your desire for revenge even if they're not repentant. You can decide, I'm not going to live in the prison of resentment even if they don't repent. But reconciliation, the rebuilding of a relationship, requires repentance and time and demonstration of trustworthiness. And that's exactly what happens here. 22 years after the crime, the brothers at last are healed. And this is what we're told in chapter 45, verses 21 and 22, that Joseph gave them carts, and he gave them provisions for their journey, and to each of them they, he gave new clothing. doesn't say what kind of clothing, but I guess, my guess would be he got them robes, very colorful ones. you notice if you read the story, there's, there's lots of weeping going on in this reconciliation. In fact, the story of Joseph has more crying than any other story in the Bible. I have a feeling there was probably lots of laughter there, too. In fact, let me point out one of the places where maybe there would have been some laughter. It's in chapter 45, verse 24. When finally he sent his brothers away, as they were leaving, he said to them, Oh, yeah, and don't quarrel on the way. <laughs> Remember the last time that happened? You ended up selling one of us. <laughs> don't do that again. I mentioned this was a Christmas story. Let's bring it all back. Sometime later, back in Canaan, their dad, Jacob, is dying. And it's time for him to give his blessing to his sons. And here's what's really fascinating. The most important blessing didn't go to Joseph, to the golden boy. The most important blessing didn't go to Benjamin, the baby, the other favorite. It went to Judah. Again, not the firstborn. Chapter 49 now, verse 8. Jacob speaks these words of blessing over his son. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. The scepter. That wasn't the dream. You were a lion's cub, the scepter. That's what kings hold. Verse 49, or chapter 49, verse 10. And that scepter, that scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of all the nations will be his. And he will tether his donkey to a lion and his colt to the choicest branch. And he will wash his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. The scepter, the crown, these are images of royalty. The great kings of Israel will not come from Joseph nor Benjamin from Judah. A king one day named David and then a king of another kind entirely. 
one who will be called the Son of David, that is Jesus himself, who will also be called the Lion of Judah, who will on Palm Sunday ride into Jerusalem on his donkey, the symbol not of military power but of peace and reconciliation. And his robe will be taken from him and washed in blood. And he will say, as his ancestor Judas said before him, let the punishment fall on me. Let the cross fall on me. I will drink the cup. For after all, I am my brother's keeper. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I hope you know this. I hope you know this most passionately at Christmas time. That through Jesus you can be reconciled to God. Forgiven, accepted, loved in spite of all of your sins and mine. But this too is part of the Christmas story. I cannot say God, I want to accept this great gift of reconciliation, reconciliation, the acceptance for me, but I don't want to seek it for anybody else. I'll take it from you, but I won't give it to them. Folks, the way of envy and resentment has been tried before. It leads only to misery and to death. So this Christmas, this Christmas, Maybe in some of the quiet time that you haven't had other years. Maybe in the separation imposed by restrictions because of a virus that has, has paralyzed our world. Maybe this Christmas there's additional time to stop and ask, where is God calling you to reconcile? Or at least to seek it. If there were a verse that, that I would inscribe on an ornament and hang on your tree, this year, here's the verse. 1 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. In verse 18. And all of this is from God. This is the Christmas story. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. But who is it for you? Maybe your brother or sister, your mom or your dad, one of your children or grandchildren, an ex, somebody at school, a former colleague. Will it be messy and confusing and and take repeated conversations. Maybe it takes 23 years. Maybe. Maybe it will. But I know this. There is a difficult person in your life. And you actually still need them. Because for some reason, they're part of your growth. And if you don't have a difficult person in your life, contact the church. We keep a list of difficult people. We'd be happy to assign one to you. I want to ask you this. If you'll make a commitment that whatever call you have to make, whatever note you have to write, that this Christmas you will pursue reconciliation 
in the light of what God through Jesus has done for you. And then one last word, a pastoral word. Because I know for some of you, this is a hard message to hear and it's kind of a hard command to heed because you've suffered a hurt and it runs so very deep. Maybe an ex who betrayed you, a child who rejected you, a business partner partner who cheated on you, family member who abused you. You've been betrayed and lied to. It was done deliberately, maybe openly. It's unacknowledged. It's unrepented. It's unconfessed. And I don't know. I don't know. But if reconciliation, if full reconciliation is to happen, it can only be based on the acknowledgement of truth and of genuine trust. And I know this. I know this about myself. I know my own capacity for brooding and resentment and self-pity. It's astounding to me sometimes. I could quite easily qualify for the self-pity Olympics. I know the way that bitterness just twists up a life. But I also know this, and we know this from the story of Joseph. We know that when Joseph was kidnapped, the Bible says that God was with him in slavery. When he was arrested, the Bible says these amazing words, that God was with Joseph in prison. And we know this. We know it from a hundred or more beautiful versions of the carols that will sing out, Jesus is Emmanuel. Which means, again, God is with us. God is with you right now. So let me make you a deal. I will ask God every day, to give me the power to be my best self. I will never give up on the dream of reconciliation, of truth-based, sin-confessing, wrongs-amending, heart-healing, God-powered reconciliation. And I will continue to pray and work and hope for that. I'm going to ask everybody who is part of this church to do the same in your own life. To be a reconciliation seeker. Feel? I'm excited about reconciliation. Let me pray for you. Let's pray together. God, I pray for everyone who knows what it feels like to be hurt or wounded, betrayed, rejected. I pray that you would give wisdom and courage, softness of heart, determination of spirit. Most importantly, though, I ask that you would be with each of us on this journey of reconciliation. Wherever you are this morning, I'm going to ask if you'll just keep your heads bowed for a moment. Take a moment to reflect on the relationships of your life. This time of year, I know that there can be a really tender one. I just want to ask you to allow God to speak to you in these moments. As you look back over the recent weeks or maybe months of 
of this strange year. Ask that God would show you a person who has been on your mind, in your heart quite a lot. Bring them to mind. And in your mind's eye, as you picture them, as you hear their voice and see their face, take a moment to ask God to deal directly with you right now about that relationship you have. Ask God to reveal the strongest emotion that's there in your relationship. What's your greatest concern or fear or hope? And if you desire something particularly for that relationship, ask God for it now. And finally, take a moment to express willingness to God. It may be there in a step you need to take towards that person. You may need to take a, make a phone call or, or write a note or have a conversation. God gave his son on a cross to be reconciled to you. And he asks you and me now to be reconciled to the people in a world that is crippled with brokenness and envy and hate. So would you make that decision now? Make that promise before God. Heavenly Father, I pray for every heart listening to my voice right now. I pray for every hurt, every burden, all the anger, fear, and confusion, all of that darkness. God, would you cleanse it away? Would you light our way? Would you bring the miracle of reconciliation between brothers and sisters? Together we pray in Jesus' name. And together we say, Amen.